This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. They are going to garnish your wages automatically. They are going to take your tax return. They are going to take any government payments you might get, like disability, social security. They could even sue you. The list goes on and on and on. And there's no statute of limitations on federal student loan debt. So like this can happen forever. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're going to do two things. First, we're going to be answering the question, what will happen if I don't pay my student loans back? Yeah. I'll be seeking the wisdom of a super smart friend of the show, Robert Farrington, from The College Investor, to answer this one, especially as it's super timely with student loan payments resuming shortly. Second, we're back with our generational wealth segment. This quarter, we're going to be featuring author and generational wealth expert Clifton Corbin. We're going to be talking about how to teach your child the value of money. All right, let's jump into today's show. Student loan payments will resume in October. This can come as a massive shock for so many Americans, given that there's been a student loan payment pause for over three years. There is a growing wave of people online asking the question, well, what if I just don't pay back my student loans at all? Well, big questions like this are always better with really smart friends, so I thought I'd answer this one with Robert Farrington. Robert is a millennial money expert and the founder of The College Investor. He's on a mission to help millennials get out of student loan debt and start building wealth for their future. When Robert isn't supporting millennials with money advice, he's spending time with his wife and two kids in San Diego. Welcome back to the show, Robert. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, you and I spend a lot of time together online, so I figured maybe we could just do this interview here. And I know we're going to see each other soon in New Orleans for some fun. So great to connect with you now. Let's let's answer this question right away. Let's say I have like $30,000 of student loans. Maybe I'm using this example because I did have $30,000 of student loans back in the day. And I just decide to never pay them back. What will happen? Not paying your student loans is probably the worst financial mistake you can make. There is a lot of talk about this right now. And if you go on Reddit or you go on other sites and people are like, I'm just not going to pay, what are they going to do about it? Well, let me tell you what they're going to do about it because it's not pretty. Well, first off, let's say like right now we're in a unique situation that they are giving all borrowers a 12-month grace period before you have to start. So Let's just say that right now, it's not going to start happening to you until October of next year. But, you know, we all know how time can get away from you and you think that I'm going to get on next month, I'm going to start next month, and all of a sudden your time's up. Well, this is what's going to happen is first off, you're going to end up delinquent and in default on your student loans. So your information is going to be sent over to the Department of the Treasury and you're just going to end up in this black box of a system called the Default Resolution Group. And they are going to garnish your wages automatically. They are going to take your tax return. 
They are going to take any government payments you might get, like disability, social security. They could even sue you. The list goes on and on and on. And there's no statute of limitations on federal student loan debt. So like this can happen forever. And then you think, well, you know, they're just going to garnish my wages and my tax returns and eventually it'll get paid off. Well, guess what? They're going to add 20% a month in collection fees and you're still going to pay the interest and late fees and all this other garbage. So guess what? Your loan balance will grow far faster than any garnishments and tax offsets and all that will ever do to help you. So I promise you, you will end up worse off financially with your student loans. But then the other kicker is, right, what are we trying to avoid here? Maybe a $300 a month payment. I'm just going to throw it out there. Guess what's going to happen to the rest of your financial life? Everything's going to get more expensive because your credit's going to tank, right? So they're going to report you. Everything's going to be delinquent. You know, it's going to be harder to rent an apartment. You're never going to buy a house. All your car loans, things like that are going to go up in price because you're not going to get the best rates. If you want something like a a new cell phone, guess what? They're going to make you put a deposit down because they don't trust you to pay your monthly bills. The list just goes on and on and on about how the rest of your financial life gets more expensive. So I promise you that like the cost that you think you're saving for your student loans is going to be made up for (laughs) in the higher cost of everything in your life and the opportunities that you lose and things. And then here's a scary stat too, right? If you get your wages garnished, guess what? You can get fired if you get your wages garnished. So if you have two wage garnishments, your employers are legally allowed to fire you in every state. If you work for the government, you could lose your security clearance. And this is important for the military members and other government people. And guess what? If you lose your security clearance, they're firing you too. So like, there's just so many financial repercussions and like business repercussions that can come from not paying your student loans. It's just like, don't do it, especially with what I know we're going to talk about later with all these new repayment plan options and different things that can help you. So just please don't not pay your student loans. It's literally the worst financial move you can make. Yeah. Well, I mean, outside of the financial things that you just said, which are heartbreaking, emotionally, that's got to be tough to carry on. And we're talking about Social Security. Let's just say, I'm never going to pay it. And then like they're starting to take your Social Security down the road. Can you imagine holding on to these things for 10, 20, 30 years and just feeling like this weight on your shoulder? Forever. Well, you know, the worst part too is the social security stuff actually isn't even for like young kid borrowers. You know, where that usually comes into play is a parent that thought they were doing well for their kids. Like, I'm going to, you know, borrow money for my children's education. And then look, they hit retirement and they can't afford it. And they're garnishing your social security. And it's like heartbreaking because, and I know we'll probably talk about this later too, but it just adds to the family drama and the dynamic. And it's very hard. Absolutely. Well, okay. That's the doomsday let's, right this there. Is something positive, let's, right? Let's talk about some options. Let's say, okay, well, I've got that $300 payment that's going to come up. And honestly, Robert, things are pretty tight for me right now. And inflation's, you know, yeah, it's slowing down, but it's still up there and it's hurting me. $300 is going to be tough for me. What are my options? Let's frame this in a few ways, but there are a lot of different repayment plans for borrowers. If you are one of the 20% of borrowers that have never made a payment before because you graduated in the last three years, you default into the standard 10-year monthly payment plan. And that plan is actually the highest amount that you could possibly pay every single month, which is that's probably how you're getting a $300 a month payment. Let's be honest, that's actually pretty high with these new repayment plan options. And you might've heard of this cool thing 
thing called SAVE. It's saving on a valuable education. It's actually the newest student loan repayment plan, and it just started back in July. So sadly, a lot of people don't know about it yet. But it has the potential to cut your student loan payment in half. And I was doing a little math before the show, but to get a $300 a month payment as a single adult in this country, you would have to make almost $100,000 a year. So you're making pretty good money to even have a $300 a month payment on this new save repayment plan because it's based on your income and it's set at 5% of your discretionary income, which is half of what the current plans are. The current plans are either 10% or 15%. And so, you know, to have a big payment like that means you're, you're making decent money. Maybe your budget's tight. I get it. But a lot of borrowers on the save plan are going to have a $0 a month payment. If you make under $38,000 a year as a single person or $65,000 a year as a family of four, your monthly student loan payments could be $0 a month under the save plan. And so like, yeah, I know the debt is stressful and it like doesn't feel good to see that balance there. But when it comes to your monthly budget, it's not hurting you at all. Those are good options to consider. And as you said, I think it's got a PR problem because I think more people need to hear about it in order for them to consider what that can do if they stretch this out and then take advantage of new programs like this. Let's jump back to the parents that are listening that maybe did the Parent PLUS loan that they're attached to. Did those start resuming back in October as well? Yes, they do. So Parent PLUS loans resume. So there's two sides to the Parent PLUS loan equation. There is the parents that already have these loans. And as you might know, there are very limited options with Parent PLUS loans. Historically, the only real option was the income contingent repayment plan, which is the least affordable income-driven plan. It wasn't that great of one. But there is an option that you can do until the end of the year, and it's called the double consolidation loophole. And this is a good one. It's a little complicated. So like, I'm not going to do it justice on this podcast, but I guarantee that if you have a Parent PLUS loan, look up double consolidation. And what you do is you consolidate your loans one time and then you consolidate them again with a different loan servicer. And guess what? All of this old stuff gets lost in the ether. And so they don't know you had a Parent PLUS loan and now you're qualified for all of these new student loan repayment plans like the SAVE plan, different things like that. They've caught on to this and it's going to go away next year and they've officially announced that this loophole is closing. But if you have a Parent PLUS loan today, it's an option. But please make sure you do it right. Google it. Understand what you're doing so you don't mess it up. Part two is if you're a parent and you're looking at your kids paying for college, I don't recommend Parent PLUS loans. Please don't do them. I really, really, really hate seeing parents borrow for their kids' education. Because as we alluded to at the top of the show, number one, it's the parent's loan, not the kid's loan. They have no legal responsibility to this. And I think a lot of people don't really realize that. Like the parents think that the kid's going to repay it and the kids don't really know what they're getting into because let's be honest, they don't really know what they're getting into with student loans to start with. And then it turns into this like family drama later in life. And I see it every single day where the parents like, I thought my kid was going to help me and now they're not. And now I can't afford things. And then the kids are like, I feel burdened because I can't afford this Parent PLUS loan. But like, I feel bad not helping my parents. And like, it really messes up family dynamics. So I really don't like Parent PLUS loans as well. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I mean, these. <laughs> I wish I had you on here for some cheery conversation here, Robert. But a lot of these are, are tough situations. And another not so cheery you know, piece of news for people who are hoping for that big forgiveness thing 
Is there any hope for some sort of forgiveness for people? I know we had some news recently that, you know, the big idea of forgiveness is not going through, but are there other avenues? What else can people look into? Yeah, you know, honestly, student loan forgiveness is one of my favorite things because, you know, there's no blanket, like everyone gets 10 grand or whatever forgiven. That's not happening. It's not going to happen in the future either. Like, don't buy the narrative. The reason it's not going to happen is because it's illegal. Like, I don't think a lot of people realize this. Like, the president doesn't just have a willy-nilly power to do this. You know who does? If, if you want this kind of program, Congress has that ability. And you could vote in people into Congress that would vote for this. And I'd like to remind everyone, because, you know, they seem to think it's like one party or another. Well, you know, the Democrats had both the House, the majority in the House, the Senate, and the presidency for a solid couple years, and they didn't do anything about it. So, like, don't think it's one party or another that doesn't want to forgive student loans. It seems to be pretty bipartisan. They don't want to do that. But with that in mind, today with no changes to the law, 50% of all student loan borrowers qualify for some type of student loan forgiveness program. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. So there's a couple big buckets of student loan forgiveness. First off is every income-driven repayment plan includes loan forgiveness. So save, pay-as-you-earn, income-based repayment, all of these income-driven repayment plans include student loan forgiveness, but the timeline's not that sexy. Timeline is 20 to 25 years, and that doesn't feel great. The SAVE plan, though, lets you get student loan forgiveness after 10 years if you have $12,000 or less in student loan debt when you start. So, you know, you get a little bit sooner. But, like, let's be honest. If you graduate at 22, you can be debt-free at 43. Like, you still got your whole life ahead of you. You know, it's not like you're going to be burdened forever. So it's one option. The other program that I love to talk about is public service loan forgiveness. And this program, and it applies to about 13 to 15 million Americans that have student loans, is if you work in public service for 10 years, you get the total remaining balance of your student loans forgiven tax-free. And I, what I love about this program is it's so broad because the definition of working in public service means you could work for the federal government, the state government, local governments, education, you know, local education, higher education, the library. You could work for public safety, like law enforcement, fire department, but you don't have to be like a teacher or a police officer. You could be like the accountant <laughs> at the district. Like it doesn't matter what your actual job is as long as you're employed in public service. And that's where I think a lot of people don't realize that they might qualify for it because we hear a lot about like teachers qualify, but you know, like the librarian and the assistant and like the principal and like the accountant and the maintenance personnel, like all of them qualify too. And so there's a lot of jobs out there that could qualify for public service loan forgiveness. And it's a great program as well. Excellent. Yeah, these are all great things to look into and things that probably aren't talked about a lot because it's not sexy and it requires a little bit of research and investigation to make it happen. Let's let's talk to the person who's just like, you know what? I see that, okay, maybe it would take me 10 years to get those forgiven or 20 or 25 years to get rid of this. I make a decent amount of money. I've just been putting it off for too long. I'm ready to pay these things off. Give somebody some advice, maybe motivate them to say, how can I get rid of this and then start building wealth so I can put this debt behind me? Totally. So if you have federal student loans, I don't want you to jump the gun and say, I'm going to pay these off right away yet. 
asterisks. You know, I got some good rules of thumb for you because I also want to see you build wealth while you're paying off your student loans. And I actually think it's really a possibility for a lot of student loan borrowers. I think they get really kind of burdened in the numbers and don't realize that like student loan repayment can be an opportunity as well. So here's a couple rules of thumb. First off, if you qualify for any loan forgiveness program, you probably should not rush to pay off your student loans. Instead, you should rush to maximize your loan forgiveness and pay as little as legally allowed by law on your student loans. And there are some ways to save and lower your student loan payments. So some of the ways that I love is contributing to your 401k or your 403b if you're a teacher. It lowers your adjustable gross income and that lowers your student loan payment as a result. But now you're also building this nest egg alongside of it. You can also contribute to a health savings account or a traditional IRA and they do the same thing. But now you're not only lowering your student loan payment, you're maximizing your loan forgiveness and you're building a cool little nest egg for yourself. So, you know, that's kind of one rule of thumb. The second rule of thumb is if you owe more than you make, you're probably better off on one of these income-driven repayment plans like SAVE. And again, the rule applies because SAVE includes loan forgiveness. So if you owe more in student loans than you make, look at these income-driven repayment plans and you're probably better off milking them for the lowest payment possible while you save for yourself. And again, the, the repayment time frame is longer. Yeah, you're going to have to wait till you're like 43, right? But at 43, you'll be debt-free and you'll have a positive net worth because like you've hopefully been putting some money in your 401k or your IRA and it's grown for 20 years, right? And so instead of like putting extra to your loans and at 43, you're like net worth zero, now you get loan forgiveness and you're actually at a positive net worth of like 40K because you had some money in your 401k or your IRA. And I know it's a long time and that doesn't feel great, but that's one option. If you owe less than you make, that's when you start maybe deciding that I should, you know, maybe put some more aggressive payments towards it. Because chances are, if you owe less than you make, you're going to pay off the loans well before your 20-year time frame, even when you're on these plans. And so now it's the time when you're like, oh, I should probably start making a few extra payments trying to get these loans forgiven, or not get forgiven, but paid off as quickly as you can. So that's kind of the framework I use because I want to have people build wealth too while they're paying off their loans. And it's, it's actually a very possible thing to do. But I do think people get so burdened by the number and they're just like, I just want to be debt-free. And it's just it's like, I get it, but I want to see you be wealthy too. I like that. You know, I like how it's not just a one-size-fits-all solution too. You're thinking about these things in different phases or different income abilities for people too. And based on that, really tailoring the ideas to their situation. Is I also want to remind everyone that your life changes every three to five years. Like hopefully you're going to earn more money. Like when we were 22 and we just graduated, like we probably earned the least amount of money of our life. And then you earn a little more by your 25 and you earn a little more by your 28. You hopefully get some promotions, change jobs. But it's really hard when you're living in that moment. But like look back five years ago and see how different your life was than it is today. Right? And so, I mean, I don't want to be like the contrarian here, but that's what the government's betting on. That's why they make it 20 years <laughs> is that they're betting that <laughs> over that 20 year period of time, you start making more and more and more money and that they're not going to forgive as much debt. But it, you know, it's statistically true too. So make a plan every year. I just say revisit this every year. So, you know, student loan repayments restarting right now. 
But then next year, the fall, revisit it again. See if you're on, if your life's changed, your income's changed, maybe a different plan might make more sense. But like, just keep checking in with it. Like, this isn't like a, once you pick it once, you're stuck in this for 20 years for life. Like, you can change it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a good reminder that this is revenue for the government. They're going <laughs> to want it eventually. And they're going to find really smart ways with really smart people there to eventually get it. So I completely agree with you. Robert, you have a lot of this great information on all of your, your website, your YouTube channel, all over the place. Tell people where they can connect with you and learn more from your brand. Absolutely. So our home base is thecollegeinvestor.com. If you like podcasts, you can find us on your favorite podcasting platform at The College Investor. And if you like videos, we're on your favorite video platform at The College Investor as well. Excellent. Robert, thank you so much for your time today. I have the honor to work with Robert on his YouTube channel and TikTok. We have a lot of fun there. So please support him, subscribe all over the place. I really appreciate it, Robert. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, -on -one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up, the code is valid until April 19th, 2024. marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Building family wealth and happiness becomes a lot easier when you have time. And what do our kids have in abundance? 
time. Time to save, time to invest, and even time to make mistakes and still build the generational wealth that could positively impact your family tree for centuries to come. On our generational wealth segment today, we're going to interview author and financial educator Clifton Corbin. Clifton has spent years studying finance, and he's a passionate advocate for advancing financial literacy of children and young adults. He's the author of multiple books, including one of his latest entitled Your Kids, Their Money, A Parent's Guide to Raising Financially Literate Children. Today, we're going to learn from Clifton about how to teach your child the value of money. Welcome to the show, Clifton. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Great to have you here. Let's jump right into this right away. One of the first tips that you share openly that I've seen you talk about is about money and our kids and about talking openly about money with our kids. Let's talk about the importance of talking to our kids about money. Why is that important? Sure. So unfortunately, money is still kind of a taboo subject in our culture, in our society. So if we're not talking openly with our kids about money, they won't have a chance to learn about how money works, how we acquire money, how we use our money. We won't give them a chance to learn our values when it comes to money. So there's so many benefits that come just from talking openly within our own families about money. So it's one of the things, I, like you said, I like to advocate, especially for that, because so many learnings come naturally and organically just from having conversations and being open and willing to talk to our kids and answer your questions when it comes to money. And how early should we be starting this? I mean, we're parents, we have conversations about parenting on the show. How early is too early? Sure. So I like to say, as soon as your kids start to recognize that money is something that you're using to transact, something you're using to trade and, and get goods and services, they will notice it naturally. Like, there's no way that we can go through, you know, most of our days without at least interacting with money in some way. And if we have our kids along with us, they will notice it as well. So once they start asking about it, once they start talking about it, once they start noticing it, it's a great chance to start, you know, having those early conversations. Like, you're not going to jump right into talking about inflation and interest at those ages, you know, at that four, five, six years years of age, but you could start talking to them about, you know, well, what is money? Why do we need it? What are we using it for? How do I get it? So those early conversations can happen pretty early. Like I said, four or five is most kids will start at least recognizing that money is something that, that they need, especially once they start wanting to acquire and get things of their own. So those are some good early indicators that, you know, now is a good time to start these conversations. That's great. Yeah. So we're talking around that time frame and you're you're out and about with them. Maybe some examples of some practical ways to share some of these lessons, maybe just from everyday things. What are some examples? Sure. So like one of the things I love doing just when my kids were little, and I think it's great for all youngsters, is if you bring your kids grocery shopping with you, there's so much learning that can happen there, right? You have to do the transacting. You get a chance to talk about, you know, budgeting and how much money I've set aside for these groceries. You could start talking about needs versus wants. Like, do do I need the strawberries or do I want the strawberries? Can we substitute <laughs> strawberries for bananas? You know, you can even get into those conversations about inflation and why things are getting so expensive and, you know, the cost curve, like supply versus demand. So there's so many opportunities there. But like I say, just make it part of your everyday. The last thing I want to do is encourage parents to, you know, get a whiteboard and sit kids down by the fireplace <laughs> and have fireside chats about money. Like that's not necessary. There's opportunities that kind of arise naturally throughout our day as we're interacting with our kids to talk to them about what we're doing and why we're doing it when it comes to money. And like I said, when those opportunities come, I just say, take advantage of them. They're, the kids are naturally curious. So use that curiosity and feed that curiosity by talking to them about it. And the learning will come. The learning will come. 
I think that's great. I think, yeah, sometimes maybe parents who say, well, I don't know a ton about money or I don't have that background. Like, what could I teach them? Teach them your everyday life. Teach them how you're dealing with money. And a big part of dealing with money is spending money and getting money in kids' hands. Talk to us about how we can teach our kids how to spend money wisely. Sure. So one of the things I like to advocate, if it works within your budget, like one of the things I I preface this with is, you know, financial literacy, personal finance is personal first. So when you're teaching financial literacy, Take it all with the, you know, the caveat that it has to work with your family, with your values and your budget. But if it works within your budget to give your child an allowance, I love that because it gives them an opportunity to start practicing. One of the things I say often is the more our children get a chance to practice using money, whether that be, you know, spending, saving, investing, what have you, the more chances they get to do that while they're home with you in a safe place where you can coach and guide and, you know, advise them, the more chances they have to learn, make mistakes, but make it in a way that it's safe, where it's not going to hurt their credit score, where it's not going to have major ramifications down the road. It's a chance for them to learn, make those mistakes early. So an allowance is a great opportunity to to do just that because now they have their own money to start spending, to start saving, to start investing, to start using money in a way that's practical. Once you start getting that practical experience with it, it becomes more real, it becomes more tangible, and it helps to you know really reinforce a lot of the things that you'll be talking to them about. Now, are you an advocate for physical cash where they're, hey, utilizing this in the store? Or how do you feel about debit cards? I guess talk talk to us about that. So for the youngsters, I love using cash. I know it's, you know, cash isn't something that a lot of us have on hand anymore. Most of us have gone cash-free, or at least some of us have. But for the youngsters, because they can hold it, because they can count it, because they can see it, because it's tangible, it just feels more real. It's a lot harder to go to a store and physically let go of a $1 or $5 bill or $20 bill than it is when you're doing like tapping a, a card or tapping a phone. You feel that loss and you know there's loss aversion and you want your child to actually understand there's a cost that's coming from you making this transaction. And you again, you, it's easier to count and see and you know have a balance when you can actually see how much money you have as opposed to numbers on a screen. So for the younger ages, I love using cash. Once they've understood cash and they get a good handle of it, I have no problem moving to a debit card or some of these prepaid cards that we see out there. I think they're actually quite nice, but I want to make sure that our kids have a good understanding of the basics before they start moving to the digital. Like the digital can come and the digital will come. There's no way to avoid it. But make sure they have you know that solid foundation before you move to the, to the digital. I think that's great. I think sometimes I need a reminder with some cash in my hands, too, because uh, I do a little swipe, swipe, tap, tap a little too much. So I'm like, oh, whoops, <laughs> that's more than I thought and didn't have a plan for. So I, I think that's a good reminder for adults as well. Let's talk about saving in general, because I don't know. I think I've been doing this for a while. The word save, it's just not the sexiest word, you know, the most exciting word. How can we encourage our kids to want to save? One of the things I talk about is creating an op- talking to your kids more about not saving, but what they get via saving. So when you save, you have op- you you're basically you're stockpiling opportunities. Really, is what I like to say. So what I talk to parents about is tell your kids that you're you know you want to have an opportunity fund, right? So if your friends go to the fair or to the movies and you've spent all your money because you know you wanted to buy X, Y, or Z, but you spent everything that you have, now you're going to miss out on those opportunities. 
So having a little bit of money saved up as an opportunity fund, savings is what we're talking about, but frame it in the form of you want to be able to afford opportunities down the road. And that might encourage them to keep a little bit money, keep a little bit of their money set aside for those opportunities that come. Because it's one thing, like we all know, is that fear of missing out, right? So if you can use that fear of missing out, that FOMO, to help encourage them to keep some money set aside, it will help to start establishing that saving, that keeping some of their money set aside, that idea of you don't want to use all of your money. You want to, you know, live within your means and keep some of that money set aside. So the Opportunity Fund, I think, is a great way of, you know, encouraging that saving habit. I think that's great. And I, I think it's a good reframe. I keep bringing this back. I think it's a good reframe for adults too, because sometimes when you're like, well, I should save, but then you're like, why? Why should I save? You put a label on it, you put a reason on it. Hey, this is for vacations. I mean, obviously for kids, we're talking about hey, maybe a new bike, you know, for my daughter at her age, it's like she wants to save up for her cell phone, things like that. So she has an opportunity to have a nice phone and be able to communicate with her friends. So if you put a label to it, it becomes a little bit more tangible. Let's talk to the parent who's listening right now and just says, I'm a financial mess. How can I teach my kids how to handle money? What would you say to that person? I do get this question often and a few things I like to say. One, you know more than your child does, right? So your child's coming from a point of zero, whereas if you're, you know, you've made some missteps along the way, you can learn from those. You can at least teach what you've learned so that they can hopefully avoid the mistakes that you made. Second thing I like to say is, if you feel like you're not in the place you want to be and you have a child and you want to make sure that they end up in a place that's, you know, hopefully better than you, that's kind of what we all want from our, for our children. This is an opportunity for you to learn. This is an opportunity for you to go seek out, you know, books or courses or podcasters or advisors or coaches to then learn. And one of, you know, we hear this all the time, the best way to learn is to teach. So use your child as an opportunity to express what you've learned and also use them as an accountability tool, right? Because again, we want the best for our kids. We want them to learn from us and our kids learn from seeing and seeing what we're doing and not just from what we're saying. So if we can actually show them that, you know, we're not just saying these things, but we're living these things, it will help them grow. It will help them learn. So there's there's an opportunity there for you as well. And I, that's whether you've you know made missteps or not, there's an opportunity there for you in any way to make sure that you're living the values that you want your kids to hopefully as you know aspire to. Absolutely. And for a lot of people listening to this show, I think we're all about improvement, you know, and, and getting a fraction better than where we were yesterday. And I know you're putting out some great resources out there to help people to gain that knowledge, to gain that confidence. Tell people about your book and, and where they can get it. Sure. So my first book is called Your Kids, Their Money. It's a parent's guide to raising financial literate children. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it, you can get it basically where any books are sold. There's the audio, there's an audible version, there's a Kindle version, there's a paperback. And like I said, you can you can get that pretty much anywhere. My second book is Richest Man in Babylon, which isn't my book. It's actually a revised version of a classic, but I, rev- I revised it with my the help of my son, who's at least 10 years old. So we wrote it in a way that it would be easy for both young people and older people to understand with a lot more modern language. Because again, the book is a classic. It's about 100 years old. So it's The Richest Man in Babylon, revised for modern times. Again, you can find that on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. And I've got a resource that I want to make sure that you 
parents out there know about is basically a workbook. It does a lot of that early money recognition. It helps with some money math. And it's called, and you can get it at kidsmoneyworkbook.com. So that's a free resource. You can download that at any time. Again, at kidsmoneyworkbook.com. There's all kinds of fun activities in there for your kids to work independently or with you as a guide. And again, it just helps with that early financial literacy with word recognition and doing change for you know, different purchases. So again, it gives them an opportunity to start practicing some of these early financial literacy skills. I love it, Clifton. Yeah, if you're lacking a little of that confidence, I think having a guide can help you and just give it a little bit of that confidence so you can help your kids and be that example to them so they can see what financial literacy, financial confidence looks like. Clifton, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Andy. Thank you so much for what you do. As a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only, my friends. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific situation. Before we go for the day, I want to ask a quick favor of you. If you liked this episode, if you found it to be helpful, please consider sharing it with a friend or sharing it on social media. The best way for more people to find and consider this family empowering podcast is from recommendations from people who actually enjoy it. So please text a friend with this episode or another one of your favorites and tell them why you like it and why they should subscribe. Or better yet, share it on social media. And be sure to tag your friend Andy at Marriage Kids and Money on Instagram or Facebook or at Andy Hill MKM on LinkedIn. I appreciate your support in growing this message of family, wealth, and happiness. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Robert Frost. The best way out is always through. Tackle your important challenges head on, my friends. Carpe diem. 